So Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. This is the last sermon of 2018, and we're going to treat it somewhat like it's the first sermon of 2019. And today is a sermon that's an attempt to give some contours to our mission statement. Our statement is to celebrate and display the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. And if you'll see in your worship guide, we've had just added in 2019. And so that's what I'd like to address with you this morning. This will be somewhat of a topical sermon. Normally, the way that we preach is verse by verse through books of the Bible, but today is sort of a vision-casting sermon, so it'll be a topical sermon looking at a bunch of different scriptures and, and pulling together one main idea. And I should also add that this sermon will help give some t- direction to a short series that we're starting next week. The first major initiative of 2019 for the Gathering Church is a community group relaunch, a community group relaunch, and we're happy to announce that we are launching five new community groups in January. Yeah. And we, I have to honor Chris Taylor, who's taken much of the initiative and put a lot of work in this, this last fall to get these groups online and, and ready to go for January, so thank you, Chris. Um, community groups, community groups that are, are the first step at the Gathering Church and getting our feet on the ground in Christian community. Community groups are the first step at the Gathering Church and getting our feet on the ground in Christian community. And because of that, our vision is that every member at TGC would be in a community group. Our vision is that every member of the Gathering Church would be in a community group. So our first initiative, as we've said in 2019, is to relaunch these groups with the five more, with the goal of getting every member in a group. Another part of that initiative that we've been working on and are, is coming to fruition now is that we've been also working on assimilation, a big question that's often asked and we really haven't had a great answer for almost the last 10 years is how do I get into a community group and how do I get into a triad? And so we've realized that there needs to be at least two ways that this happens. There needs to be at least two ways that this happens. The first is still the most preferred way, and that is someone invites you. Someone invites you. And this has always been a huge part of the lifeblood of the gathering church, the welcoming, inviting, warm community. It's the constant comment that we get back that the community, that the church, the people were warm, welcoming, inviting. They've never experienced anything like this and so on. And so forth. And as elders, we want to just keep encouraging that. We don't want to put some kind of mechanism in place that shortchanges that and says, well, you know, we'll take it from here. You know, you guys were the community that got everybody involved from now, from, from up to this point. Thanks, and we'll take it from here. We don't want to do that at all. We don't want to do that at all. We want to continue to see the life on life, person to person relationships taking place. So that's the organic way, is what we could call it. The organic way of getting new folks into community groups and triads is simply by invitation. So that's an encouragement and a challenge, not just to every community group leader, but to every member of a community group, to be inviting newcomers to participate in community groups because they are the first step at the gathering church in getting our feet on the ground in Christian community. It's an encouragement to continue to invite people to your community groups and triad. That's the organic way. But second, we realize that it would be helpful to have sort of an institutional way, for lack of a better term, to help folks get information about community groups and triads. So we're launching something called Connect Central. 
And the vision and purpose of Connect Central is that it'll be a place where someone can get information about the many ministries of the church in one central spot. So information on community groups, where they're meeting, where they're located, triads, a vision, our vision for evangelism and outreach, what our vision is for discipleship, etc. And Connect Central is going to be located in, in the back of the old chapel, and you've probably seen it if you've been there the last couple of weeks. It's set to launch maybe, what, next week? It's January 6th is the goal to have Connect Central up and running. Um, so if you're a guest joining us today and you have questions about anything in the church, ask us next week. <laughs> There will be someone back there at the end of service to help you with any questions that you might have. And further, as an encouragement, part of this relaunching of community groups and, and finding ways to get people connected is that we've retooled part of the website. So if you want to take a look, not right now, after church, uh, there's a new community group tab that has information about every group that's in the church with a bio on the, on the host families, a map that shows where the different groups are meeting, a way for you to click and ask about uh, any questions that you might have. So that's the vision, that's the initiative for January uh, 2019. Okay. So to help them give some further direction on the importance and purpose of Christian community, we're going to spend the first few weeks in January looking at the topic of community in the New Testament. And right now the plan is to start next week, January 6th, and uh, to spend three or four weeks, as many weeks as we may need, to look into this important topic as we get community groups relaunched and back on track. And this sermon will hopefully give some contours and direction towards that end, but really the series will be more explicit next week. Let me start with this. As we said, our vision as a local church, is to celebrate and display the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. And almost, almost, almost every instance in the entire Bible of worshiping and adoring God is something that is done corporately. Almost every single time that God's people are engaged in worshiping and celebrating Him, it is done in a corporate setting. That's not to say... Don't do it privately. It's not to say that we don't honor God with our whole life and everything we do and so on. Of course, those things are important. Rather, it it speaks to a very important and central reality in the Bible, and that is this, that God has saved a people for his own glory to enjoy him forever together. Heaven will not be an isolated location Heaven will be all the saints of all time, millions and millions and millions of people worshiping, adoring, and enjoying God together forever. In fact, next week, one of the first texts that we'll look at in understanding Christian communities, Acts chapter 2, verses 40 to 47, which is the first description of the earliest church. The earliest church in the New Testament, we find what they're doing in Acts chapter 2, verses 40 to 47, and the culminating description of the earliest church is this, verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. The praise of God is the culminating description of everything else that they did. So let me try to press this in just a little bit further. The scripture reading that was read this morning was from Hebrews chapter 12. And the writer of Hebrews is picking up on imagery from a scene in the Old Testament that was transformative in the life of Israel. 
So it's a scene after they're brought up out of Egypt and brought to Sinai, where God is going to make a covenant with them. And it says this in Exodus 19. I won't read the whole thing. I'll just read a portion here. It says, On the third On the morning of the third day, there were thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people of the camp out to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain, and Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and the smoke of it went up like a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. As the sound of the mountain trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. What an awesome scene. A mountain that's wrapped in smoke, a mountain that's shaking and trembling, because God is getting ready to speak. And this is, in many ways, a a pattern of how God meets his people in the Old Testament, not every time, but oftentimes, in a sense... Coming to hear God speak is what it meant to be part of the Old Covenant. To gather together to hear God speak and address His people is what it meant to be part of the nation of Israel. A privilege to stand in the assembly before God. You remember Nehemiah chapter 8. When Nehemiah gathered the people together, it says, And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. This is Nehemiah 8, 1 through 3. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month, and he read it from early in the morning until midday. And jumping down to verse 6, and Ezra blessed the people, excuse me, blessed the Lord, the great God, and the people answered, amen and amen, and they lifted up their hands, and they bowed their heads, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces on the ground. Bible's being read, God's word's being opened, it's being read for hours at a time, and when it's read, the people say, amen, amen, they lift their hands, they put their faces on the ground, and they worship him. So three things are happening, both in Exodus 19 and in Nehemiah chapter 8, three things, the people are gathering, there's an assembly, and they're doing it to behold his glory and to hear him speak. People are gathering to behold his glory and to hear him speak. So it's truly remarkable that the word in the New Testament for church, ecclesia, means gathering or assembly. The word for church means gathering or it means an assembly like this. So the, fast forward now to the book of Hebrews. What the people had been doing is apparently they've been neglecting to meet together. They've been neglecting to assemble together. They've been neglecting to be the church together. So the writer says, stop neglecting meeting together as a habit of some. And then he gets to this awesome place where he picks up on the imagery from Exodus, and he says, for you've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness and glued into tempest, And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God, who is a judge of all, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, 
and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, do you realize, do we realize what has just been said here? That when we, the New Testament church, assemble to behold his glory and to hear his word, we're not coming to the Sinai flaming mountain with thunder and lightning. No, he says we're coming to something far greater. He says that when we assemble to behold his glory and hear his word, that we're coming to hear God speak in an assembly that's filled with throngs of heavenly hosts. So what does that mean? It means that God is here right now. It means that what we are doing right now in this moment is something that we won't do any other time this week. It means that when we join together in this place on Sunday mornings, that God is here to speak to us through his word. For us to behold his glory as we stand and sing his praises and engage him through singing. And if you're new here and the singing is maybe more intense than you're used to, that's because that we believe that when we assemble on Sunday mornings, God shows up to this place in a way that he doesn't any other time throughout the week. And we want to celebrate his glory. And we want to behold his beauty and to rejoice in it. In a way that we can't any other time in the week. God attends this place in a special and unique way in the nature of the new covenant. He meets us here. John Stott said that true worship is the highest and noblest activity of which man, by the grace of God, is capable Worshiping God is the thing that your soul, it's the most profound and highest thing that your soul is able to do. Listen to Tozer. He says, in my opinion, the great single need of the moment is that lighthearted, superficial religion be struck down with a vision of God who is high and lifted up and his train is filling the temple. The holy art of worship seems to have passed away like the Shekinah glory has left the tabernacle. As a result, we are left to our own devices and forced to make up the lack of spontaneous worship by bringing in countless cheap and tawdry activities to hold the attention of church people. That's why our vision as a local church isn't a cheap substitute. Our vision as a local church is to behold, to celebrate and display the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. To see him for all that he is in his splendor and glory and to worship him and to fall down and adore him. And we do that corporately. We do that as a people. He's made us to be a people together. Mark Twain said this. He said, the two most important days of your life are the day that you were born and the day that you find out why. The two most important days of your life are the day that you were born and the day that you find out why. And most of us know the day that we're born, unless you're a kid. We don't teach our kids their birthdays. Just kidding. Unless you're a baby. But do you know why you were born? I know why every single person in this room was born. The trouble is, only if you're born again by the Spirit of God can you truly accomplish 
the purpose for which you were born. If you're a Christian, born again by the Spirit, I know exactly why God saved you. Peter tells us, 1 Peter chapter 2, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You exist. I exist. We should ask the question, the question that philosophers have asked for hundreds and thousands of years, why is there something and not nothing? Why is there something and not nothing? What is the end for which God has created the world? Why did God choose to make something? Here's why. Here's the purpose that you and I were made. The universe exists so that God might be glorified and worshipped by graciously giving us the unparalleled privilege and joy of making much of him forever. The universe exists so that God might be glorified and worshipped by graciously giving us the unparalleled privilege and joy of making much of him forever. That's why you and I were made. That we would be enabled to experience the joy, the delight, and the celebration of adoring God for all that he is. To say it again a slightly different way, there is no greater joy or delight or celebration that the human heart is capable of that is higher than the adoration of who God is. So let me lay it out this way for us. Two truths. It's two truths that I'm going to lay out, and we're going to see if they can come together. Okay? We'll see if they can come together and how they come together. The first is that God made the universe for his own glory. Okay? The Bible says this scores and scores and scores of times. The Bible says God made us for his own glory in Isaiah 43. It says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. The Bible says that God saved us for his glory. Ephesians chapter 1 says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. He destined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Here's the purpose clause. Unto the praise of the glory of his grace. God saved you for his own glory. Jesus tells us in John chapter 7 that everything that Jesus does, he does for the Father's glory. He says, he who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But he who speaks on the glory of him who sent him is true, and there is no falsehood in him. Jesus will tell us that the whole ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bring glory to Jesus. John 16 says, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's what the Holy Spirit's job is, is to glorify Jesus. Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians that everything that we're to do is for God's glory. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And we could go on and on and on and on, scores of other places, lay it out in the Bible. So that's premise one, that the whole universe exists for the glory and praise of God. So premise two. God made us with a desire for joy. God made us with a desire for joy. And we talk about this all the time. We talk about idols of the heart. We talk about the human heart constantly seeking joy, adoration, security, success, comfort, control, and so on. Right? We talk about how the fact that every human heart is constantly seeking joy. That our heart is in constant pursuit of joy 
and pleasure. But the question is, is this a bad thing or a good thing? Did God make us with a desire for joy? Or is this joy and happiness thing just something that's uh, a a, a byproduct and, and needs to just kind of be suppressed, needs to be put aside? No. God made us with a desire for joy. Listen to Blaise Pascal. He says, all men, he's a philosopher, all men seek happiness, and this is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. This is the cause of why some people go to war. It's the reason why others avoid it. It's the same desire in both, but attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the very motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. So here's the question. Can these two ideas come together? The universe existing for the glory and praise and adoration of God and the happiness of the human heart and human being. And the answer to this question, I don't think I can overstate it by saying that the answer to this question is probably the most wonderful answer in the entire universe. Because the answer to this question, of course, is yes. That the praise and adoration of God is not in conflict with the happiness and joy of every single human heart. Because every single human heart can only find its truest longings, its truest desires, its joy-seeking, its happiness-seeking in the glory and adoration of God. The chief end of the universe is to glorify God, and our greatest joy comes in celebrating and displaying that beauty and that glory. So here, I'll continue to lay it out and then I will go to 1 John chapter 3, and we'll figure out how do we get that? How do we work that in? Here's a long, famous quote from C.S. Lewis from the Psalm, uh, his book, Reflection on the Psalms, that ties these two ideas together. That the glory of God and the happiness of man coming together in an act of praise... He says, but the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything else, strangely it escaped me for so long. I thought of it in terms of a compliment or approval or giving someone honor, but I had never noticed that all the enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless there's a shyness or fear of boring others is deliberately brought into check. The world rings with praise lovers praising their mistresses. Readers praise their favorite poets. Walkers praise the countryside. Players praise their favorite game. There's praise of weather. There's praise of wine. Praise of food. Praise of actors. Cars. Horses. Colleges. Countries. Children. Flowers. Mountains. Rare stamps. Even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest... And at the same time, most balanced minds praised most while the mitzvists and cranks and malcontents praised the least. I had not noticed either 
that just as men spontaneously praise whatever it is they value, so they urge others to join them in praising in it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't that glorious? Don't you think that's magnificent? The Psalms, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do all the time when they talk about what they care about. My whole and more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdity in denying to us as regards the supreme value that we delight to do what we do, and we can't help but doing it about everything else that we value. See his point? Everything else that we truly esteem, that we truly value, we naturally overflow into praise. The way we want to talk about our kids, the way we want to talk about our wives, the way we want to talk about some beautiful book that we just read, or a film that we watched, or music that we heard. It's the reason that we have people hey, put their iPod earbud and say, listen to this. It's, oh, it's a natural overflow to sing something you delight in to cause and welcome others to delight in it too. It's not something that you have to tell yourself to do. You don't have to tell yourself to overflow in praise from a thing that your heart's automatically already delighted in. I don't, have to, I don't have to remind myself to tell other people how great my kids are. I just naturally start talking about them, how wonderful they are, how much I love them, how great they are, their accomplishments. I text people pictures of things that they do, and they don't write me back because they don't think it's as cool as I do. We don't have to conjure something up within us to do that. End of the quote. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy. Because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. I'll say that again. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy, because the praise not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until they express it. Wow. The delight is not complete until it's expressed. And the same is true of God. Delight yourselves in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Have you ever considered that the application of that verse is that he will make your heart, he will make himself to be the desires of your heart? Delight yourselves in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delighting yourself in God, adoring God, worshiping God, is the natural consummation of your enjoyment of him. And that's why it's our mission as a church to celebrate and to display the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. Not some tawdry or cheap substitute, but God in who he is for us. That we will work it in that we will aim towards it, press in towards it, miss it sometimes, but constantly coming back to celebrating and displaying the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. So let me try to apply how we do it. We're going to look at one place, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. How do we stir up that kind of love and affection? Because we, we just have to admit that it has to, be, it has to be worked into our hearts and minds, that it doesn't always just come natural to us. And it's probably not intentional. It's just something that happens. We just forget. We're just half-hearted creatures. We're just people who just 
forget. We get consumed with the things of the world. We get consumed with the kids. We get consumed with the paychecks. We get consumed with our to-do lists. We get consumed with whatever it is. We have to remember that we have to continue to work it in. So let me t- just talk about how to do that for a moment. First John chapter 3, I'm going to read all three verses. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know him, know us, is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But what we know is that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Look, a few things. This is just a beautiful reminder of the gospel to us. Look at verse 1. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason that we are children of God is not by anything that you and I have done within ourselves. The reason that you and I are called children of God is by a determination by the Father to adopt us into his family. You know, while we were worshiping this morning, I was tempted to come up and I felt like the Lord may have been giving me a, a word for someone in the congregation and, and I, I don't know if I should have said it or not, but I'll say it now. And I just had this vision as we were singing these songs that were adoring and praising God and speaking of all that he is for us in Jesus Christ. And I had this vision of someone or, 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 or people in this room that were caught in a snare, that were caught in bondage and sin. And there was something in you that wanted to sing these songs, these praises to God, but you felt like you would be dishonest and disingenuous within yourself to sing them because you know that you're caught in a snare or caught in a sin. And I wanted to get up and say this verse to you. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. That there is more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in you. And there is not one sin under heaven that can keep you from his love and his grace and his mercy. And the Bible simply says if we confess our sins that he is faithful and righteous and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And I wanted to say that to you so that you could stand and sing with a clear conscience and praise him for, the, for his grace, praise him for his love, praise him for his mercy. Because sometimes we feel Sometimes we feel that we haven't lived up to the way that we ought to sing to him like that, to call on him as father, because we haven't lived our week, we haven't lived our month, we haven't lived the last couple of years the way that we should. But let me tell you, this imagery of a father reminds something, reminds me of something as a father, that when my children are struggling, are suffering, are feeling, acting wayward, it's in that moment that I feel more like a father than ever before. That I feel like they need my guiding, loving hand in their lives. Then when things are going great, when things are going well, when things are going fine, it's sort of like they're, they're doing great. But when they, when, they, when they get off track, when they err, when they make a mistake, in that moment, I feel more like a dad than ever before. And if I feel that way, how much more must the Heavenly Father feel that way towards us? Now, when we're wayward, 
When we're falling, when we're sinning, when we're weak, then he's strong on our behalf, ready to pick us up and fall into his loving arms. Remember, you are a child of God because he has bestowed that upon you. It was a gift. He gave it to you. There's nothing you did to receive it. It was simply by his sheer mercy and grace. And if that word was for you this morning, then just rest in the grace that's offered to you in Jesus. Confess your sins to him in prayer and embrace the forgiveness that is freely yours because of the finished work on the cross. Well, the second thing I want to show you is that we've been talking about beholding his glory, about seeing him in worship, seeing him in fellowship, seeing him while sitting under his word. But verse 2 is describing something that is almost too awesome to even mention. Because verse 2 is telling us that one day we will actually see God face to face. We will see God face to face. And this verse is telling us that seeing God face to face is such a powerful effect that it will actually change us to be like him. That his beauty and his glory are so magnificent, are so powerful, that simply by being in his presence, it will change us. And I think we can understand this on a really, 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 really small level. We know that feeling when we're in the presence of greatness. When they're in presence of someone who's just a a, a great man or woman, someone that's accomplished much, someone that's respectable, someone that is, is, is considerate, kind, is a person of character. And when we're around them, we just feel like we need to rise to the occasion to some degree. We feel like we want to be more like that person. Well, imagine that times infinity, that in the presence of perfection, of all beauty, of all glory, of all majesty, it will have a profound change on us. When we see him, we will be like him. That is the hope. That is where you're going. What we're doing here in worshiping him and adoring him and longing to see him through his word and engaging him through singing is a mere shadow It's like looking through a mirror dimly, as Paul will say at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, of what you will one day experience. It's what theologians call the beatific vision, or the visio dei. And it's what Jesus prayed for us in the Gospel of John. He said, Father, I desire that they also know whom you have given me, that they may be with me to see my glory. That's Jesus' prayer before he leaves. His prayer is that we would see his glory. And then John writes, years later, when he writes this epistle, he says, one day you will see it. One day you will see it. And verse 3 is pretty remarkable, too. He says, the hope of even seeing it, the hope of seeing it one day purifies us now. The longing to see it one day purifies us now. So part of celebrating and displaying the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ, part of the display of that, part of that hoping for the glory of God is that it sanctifies us, it changes us, it makes us more holy so that we become a countercultural community to the watching world. So this whole celebrating and displaying the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ is an all-encompassing endeavor. It doesn't just cover one thing, it encompasses all of the Christian life. It makes us to be a more holy people as we see his beauty, the radiance of his glory, the radiance of his purity. It makes us long and want to be people who obey him. How wonderful that will be on that day. That the outflow of his glory will be so powerful and beautiful that it will actually change us. And I don't think we can, I can barely begin to comprehend such a reality. That's something so beautiful and wonderful that just being in its presence will change you. 
Moses' face shone with just a mere glimpse how much more on that great day. One last C.S. Lewis quote. A lot of C.S. Lewis in the last couple weeks, I know. He says, Ah, but we want so much more. We want something the books on aesthetics take little notice of, but the poets and the mythologies know all about. We don't want merely to see beauty, though God knows that beauty is enough. We want something else which we can hardly put into words, to be united with the beauty that we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. That is why the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. They talk as if the west wind could really sweep into a human soul, but it can't. They tell us that the beauty of a murmuring sound will pass in a human face, but it won't, or not yet. For if we take the imagery of the scriptures seriously, if we believe God will one day give us the morning star and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun, then we may surmise that both the ancient myths and modern poetry, so false as history, may be very near the truth as prophecy. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors that we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will always not be so. Someday, God willing, we will get in. We are on the outside looking in, and one day we will get in. And here's the point, though. One day we will behold the face of God because of the gospel. We will behold the face of God one day because Jesus Christ lost it. On the cross, Jesus cried to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one who'd been in perfect fellowship with his Father for all eternity past lost his presence so that we could be brought in. We lost the presence of God walking with God in the cool of the day in Genesis because we sinned. We didn't believe him. We didn't honor him as we ought. And so how much more praiseworthy is he that he would show his love, he would show the pinnacle of his glory, of his worth to us, and that he would suffer and die in our place and on our behalf, that he would lose the promise that's been given to us so that we could have it. What a wonderful, merciful Savior. What a glorious Savior that he would go to infinite lengths for our sake. How praiseworthy he is. How full of adoration our hearts are when we see him and behold him. And let's work it in in our lives in 2019. Work it in through prayer. Work it in through fellowship and Bible study and sitting under preaching and coming to church. Being in a community group and triad. All those are ways that we work this back into our lives, our hearts, our minds, so that we would see him and behold him for who he is. Because Paul tells us in Romans 5, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we've also obtained access by faith, faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's what we get back in the gospel. When we stand justified because of Jesus, we can now rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, celebrating and displaying his beauty and his glory for one day we will go and see him on the other side of the veil and see him as he is. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for your love towards us in Jesus Christ. We want to see your glory. We want to be a church that worships you in spirit and in truth. 
full of adoration, full of worship, full of praise, hearts that are overflowing because of the gospel. Lord, pour your love out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God, let us see you, let us behold you, let us savor you. Thank you, Jesus, that you lost it all. You gave up, Lord, so that we could receive. And we give our lives to you now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We can come up row by row now and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Where we can celebrate what we got back because of Jesus. You can come up row by row, take the elements back to your seat. One of the elders will lead us in communion. And the table is open to all who are Christians. And you've uh, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And you've made that faith public through the waters of baptism. You're welcome to partake with us. Thank you.